Welcome back to another episode of The Top Step. My name is Ryan Roland-Smith. Now, on this episode, I'm so lucky to be joined by someone who has meant so much to me in my broadcasting career, and it's a pleasure any chance I get to sit alongside him in the booth. He is the one and only, the voice of the Mariners, Mr. Rick Riz. Now, if you're a Mariners fan, you love this guy, you get a chance to hear him every night as he paints that picture of the action through the airwaves. He is truly one of the game's greats. Now, I started this podcast and called it The Top Step because my favorite memories playing in the major leagues was standing on that top step of the dugout with teammates and friends, hearing their story and being inspired by their journey. As for Rick, the journey started as a 12-year-old pretending he was doing play-by-play for the Cubs in a basement in Chicago. Now, he was able to survive the grueling gauntlet of the minor leagues, eight years of it, before he finally got his shot to be a major league play-by-play announcer. And not only that, got to sit alongside a legend, the one and only Dave Niehaus. I was dying to know about his relationship with Dave, what he meant to him as a mentor and a dear friend, some of the times and memories they shared together. I also want to know what drives him to bring the same passion to the booth day in and day out, 162 games in a season, every single day, 45 years into this. I hope you enjoy this episode as Rick Riz joins me on the top step. No matter what happens, Ryan Roland Smith has something to tell his grandkids right here. Here comes the one-two pitch to Junior now. The breaking ball, he struck him out. Yeah, that will be a story for the rest of his life (laughs) as he strikes out Ken Griffey Jr. And the inning is over. All right, so yesterday, we're over at Tempe playing the Angels. Mm -hmm. Used to be the Mariners complex, right? And about the third inning... You started talking about your first year, 1983, with the Mariners, yeah. right? At that complex, mm-hmm. at the was it the Diablo Stadium? It was back Diablo then? Stadium, okay. Stadium, yeah. And you know, great story, and and obviously, you know, we didn't have enough time to dive into your first year. But was what was amazing to me was the fact that you basically went around the field from yeah. the outfield, infield, talked about the roster like it was yesterday. Yeah. And there's been times too. You know, getting getting to be around you the last couple of years you know, in in a broadcast booth. I've brought up stories from random years. I know that's your first year, but I've brought up stories from two thousand eight, two thousand seven. You can remember them like yesterday. Yeah. It, where, where does it, where does that come from? Do you think for you? Well, I, you know, when you live something and uh, that something makes such an impact on your life, like getting to the big leagues, as you experienced as as a pitcher in the big leagues, you just remember those things. Uh, I spent eight years in the minor leagues and finally got to the big leagues in 1983. So I remember going to Tempe, Arizona, where the Mariners trained from 1977 up until 1992. And that was such an impact. And now I'm in the big leagues after eight years in in the minor leagues, riding the buses for six hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14, 18 hours from Memphis to Orlando, Florida. And uh, I, I just remember like it was yesterday, you know, and I can you know, when we were talking on the air, I just can look out on the field and see Bud Bulling and Rick Sweet behind home plate, Pat Putnam and, and Kenny Phelps over at first base, Julio Cruz at second, Todd Cruz at short, uh, Dave Edler and Jamie Allen at third base, Gaylord Perry and Glenn Abbott on the mound, Bill Caudill coming out of the bullpen, Dave Henderson in center field, Al Cowens in right field, Richie Zisk as our DH. Those things made such an impression to me 
to finally be in the big leagues that you know it's been a long time but it's it sometimes uh, Ryan it feels like it just happened yesterday and I could still see all those guys out there so even years later do you still you know going back to play played in the Angels yesterday walking into that place yeah do you ever have those moments where you sit and go oh, man why was it me? Why, why do I, why was it me who got to do this and sort of pinch yeah. yourself and say, "This is amazing what I've been able to do." Yeah, no, I, I've been I've been living my dream. You're looking at, you know, one of the luckiest guys on the face of the earth. You know, I put in the work, but the good Lord has blessed me, you know, with the ability to do this. This is something that I wanted to do ever since I was 12 years old, and we can talk about that. But, uh, you know, I. I've I just been very fortunate because there's only 30 major league ball clubs. There's only 60 right. radio jobs, 60 TV jobs. So I have never, ever taken for granted one second what I do. I love it. I hope it comes through the radio. You know, 45 years of this, eight years in the minor leagues and 38 years in the big leagues, 35 with the Mariners, three with the Tigers. I just love what I do, and um, uh, I, I appreciate every moment. So you said when you were 12, this is what you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. So you were a Cubs fan growing up in... in and White Sox fan. A White Sox fan. I was fan. both. Both? Yeah, okay. as a kid. But when you were 12, so, you, so you're saying this is what you wanted to do since you were... So it wasn't yeah. you were watching baseball saying, man, I want to play or, or heading out to, to the ballpark and saying, I want to be yeah. a player. You, you knew this when you were 12 years old. Yeah. When I was 12 years old, Ryan, I really, you know, I, I wanted to be in the next Louis Aparicio like all kids. You know, they want to be a, a major league player. And, and, and I, I did, you know, I could play in high school. I walked out and made the college baseball team at Southern Illinois. But uh, also in the back of my mind, you know, I, I, I love listening to the radio, to the Cub broadcasters, Vince Lloyd and Lou Boudreau and Jimmy West and Jack Brickhouse was my hero. Uh, Bob Elson for the Chicago White Sox. I had the best of both worlds growing up. When I came home from school, my mother was the biggest Cub fan in the world. She had the game on almost every day. When I was a kid, I used to feign an illness so I could watch the game <laughs> opening day. You know, right. I did that for about three, four years. Then my mother got, got onto it. She said, you're going to school. But I remember watching the game on TV with her and then eventually, and also on the radio. Yeah. And I loved the voices coming out of the radio because those guys made me feel like I was at the ball game and I could yeah. see the game on the radio. And that's what I hope that I do now, you know, for the fans in the Northwest. But when I would come home from school, Ryan, I would go downstairs and turn on the Cub game and turn down the sound and pretend I was Jack Brickhouse. So I'd be downstairs doing the play-by-play, -play, and the bases are loaded, and here's Ernie Banks swinging a drive deep to left field. Hey, Ernie Banks with a grand slam home run. My mother goes, what are you doing down there, Ricky? I said, Mom, I'm busy. Ernie is just an home run, you know, a grand slam. So when did, I was did you feel like you sounded good back then? Oh, heck no. <laughs> <laughs> I was 12 years old. Yeah. And so uh, uh, when I was 12, I wrote Jack Brickhouse a letter. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dear Mr. Brickhouse, my name is Rick Riz. I live in Chicago. I said, I want to be a major league broadcaster just like you. How do I do it? <coughs> Excuse me. And he wrote me back this letter. And I had it for years. And he told me what you would tell any 12-year-old kid. Work hard. Believe in yourself. Eat your vegetables. I made, yeah. that, I made that up. But he wrote me back this right. letter. And I kept it for years, and I, Ryan, I wish I knew where it was with all the moves in baseball. I had it for a long time. I don't have it. But because of that letter, it gave me inspiration and hope that maybe that I could do this. And, and kids in this country, we need hope. You know, that you can do whatever it is you want to do. There's only one person that can stop you, and that's yourself. And I was fortunate. 
I did it. It's it's funny you said that because I feel like any 12-year-old, I remember when I was 12, I'm like, I'm going to play in the big leagues. Yeah. And all of a sudden, but but there's a lot of kids who say that, but when you go 13, 14, something happens, I think even more now so. Yeah. Kids are exposed to so much more now to tell them, no, sorry, you you can't do that. Yeah. It's exceptional. You can't do that. So from 12 to the next three to four or five years, they're... You know, with so much that goes on as a teenage kid, yeah, was there ever that? Nah, I guess this is not going to happen, or was yeah. always that laser focus? Like, no, mm. this is what I'm doing. No, uh, it, it. I wanted to be Louis Aparicio, and and when I was in high school, I played in high schools, like I said, and I walked on. I made the team in college at Southern Illinois. I was on the vars- on the junior varsity right. team for three years, and when I got to my freshman year, and I saw a slider. I mean, a really good slider went, whoa, what, what's this? Right. And I, I knew my abilities. I knew it, I wasn't going to play in the big leagues. I walked on to make the baseball team at Southern Illinois. To this day, Itchy Jones, my head coach at Southern Illinois, we are dear friends. He comes up to Chicago, spends the day with me when he comes up there. But I knew, you know, I wasn't going to get signed or drafted. I think these kids were a heck of a lot better than I was. So I really got focused on broadcasting. That's why I went to school. But but that's that's kind of my point. Like you see that slider for the first time, you're like, oh, okay, man, th- yeah. these kids these kids are better than me. Or yeah. or I'm oh, not. Yeah. Like you start doubting your, your ability, yeah. right? Whether it's baseball, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, the same thing has to happen broadcasting wise, yeah. right? In in a, in a sense, it's no kid has got that. You know, that laser focus, say, no, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm going to be the best here yeah. and take one of those 30 major league jobs. Yeah. At that time, I, I wanted to be a major league broadcaster. Yeah. I knew the baseball thing wasn't going right. to happen, but I was very focused yeah. on my career. I wanted to do this ever since I was a kid, like I talked about. And the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I, I became, after I stopped playing, I got a job as the sports director at a local ABC affiliate in Carbondale, Carbondale Illinois, the mm-hmm. home of Southern Illinois University. And I had a chance to do play-by-play for SIU football and basketball, and I talked them into doing baseball, and that's what I wanted to do. They had yeah. a 15-minute sports show Monday through Friday, and I got paid for it, too, a couple hours, an hour, a couple dollars an hour, whatever it was. But the best thing that ever happened to me was I knew it was going to be tough, but for some reason, I don't know why I did this, Ryan, I gave myself 10 years. I gave myself time. You, I don't you, know why I did it, yeah. but I'm glad I did. It took me eight years in the minor leagues. If I gave myself one year, I would have never made it. Four years, never made it. Seven years, I would have never made it. But after eight years, Dave Niehaus and the Mariners liked my tape, and I got my first big league opportunity. But time was the biggest thing. I invested in myself. And that's why I'm, I think I'm here today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you said that because I was down at the winter meetings in December and they have these, um, you know, con- in the convention center, yeah. they have like, um, like tr- sure. uh, trade expos and stuff. And one of the things is, is broadcasting and this and that. But you walk around that major league lobby and you see a lot of young kids, yeah. fresh out of college or college yeah. kids. They're dressed nice. They've got yeah. their business card. Big smile they've on their face. Their, yeah, they've got their visitor um, uh you know, pass on the whole thing. And, and some of them walked up to me and said, oh, hey, I'm, I'm from the Northwest. Yeah. Can you help me out? And I always tell them, look, you know, I, I'm a little bit different boat because I, I got extremely lucky because I was playing and I got a chance to come and, and you know, do some, do some things with the team that I, I came up with. But um, some of them, I feel like maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. 
But when you have a conversation with him, you say, well, you have not you don't have to, but you're probably going to have to go to a minor league team. Oh, you have to. And it's Absolutely. competitive. It's very. I don't quite think, and maybe it's good to be oblivious to it, that was. how competitive you, you were oblivious to Oblivious, it? yeah. yeah. I, I had <laughs> but you no gave idea. yourself 10 years, right? Yeah, exactly. It is, because you know, I've been around minor league, broadcast like play-by-play guys who have been there for years it's so competitive i don't think people understand even mariner fans understand yeah first of all how difficult it is how good you have to be but you mentioned you said it took you what seven eight years eight years of just making no money bus rides yeah is there any good memories though in in that a lot of good memories a lot of good memories uh first of all getting my first job my great buddy john dietrich who i saw just the other day down here uh, we went to college together. Love, he loves baseball and always wanted to be in the front office. He got a job as the Padres AA uh, general manager in Alexandria, Louisiana in 1975. And um, he got me started in baseball. That's how I got into the minor leagues. Uh, two days after I graduated from SIU, I went to cover a baseball tournament in Tulsa. We lost the regional tournament, so I went home, mm-hmm. drove all the way to Chicago from Tulsa after I graduated, woke my folks up at one o'clock in the morning. I had to actually take a pebble and throw it up against their bedroom window to wake <laughs> me up, to wake them up right. to get in the house. So we sat in the kitchen for about an hour, and my dad goes, uh, "Well, what are you going to do now? You know, four years of college." I said, "Dad, I'm going to start looking for a job. You know, go to the stations in Chicago." Mm-hmm. And my mother said, after about an hour, my mom goes, "Oh, some guy from Louisiana called," and I said, "Oh yeah, that's that's probably John Dietrich. You know, he's the GM down there." She said that uh, he wants you to call him. I said, okay, I'll call tomorrow. She said, no. He said to call as soon as you got in, no matter what time it was. I said, Mom, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. She said, she told me, John said to call him as soon as you got in. Right. So I called him at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, hey, John, what's up? He said, how would you like to come down to Alexandria here? I said, he said, I need a clubhouse guy. I said, what's <laughs> I go, what's that? Right. He said, well, I need a guy to wash the uniform, shine the <laughs> shoes, you know, take care of the visiting players here. My clubhouse guy quit. He said, you got a job up there? I said, no. He said, well, come on down. He said, I'll let you do three innings of play-by-play. I'll let you do the middle three innings. And I said, that sounds good. So I said, I, I'll yeah. find out what minor league baseball is all about. Yeah. He said, I'll pay you 200 bucks a month. You live with a couple of the players. I go, oh, that's going to be great. <laughs> you know, I said, sure. I said, let me spend two days with my folks, and uh, I'll, I'll be down there. So I spent two days with my mom and dad. Drove down to Alexandria, Louisiana. Had no idea where it was. And uh, I thought it would be just a summer job, and that was 45 years ago. I made $200 a month. I did three innings of play-by-play. Was someone else doing the other six innings? Yeah, yeah. Lynn Rollins was the announcer. He wasn't too happy I was there. but I was going to ask. Yeah, like, they yeah. had to be like, hey, who's this, this guy? You know? <laughs> yeah. We did a we did a doubleheader, and I didn't realize there were seven inning you know, doubleheaders. Yeah. Or, or what it was. And, and uh, I went too long, and he wasn't too happy with that. Anyway, um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I finally got uh, my first oh, – it was nine innings, but I went too long. And uh, I, I found out I, I really love this. Yeah. I really do, and I want to keep doing it. And then we moved the franchise from Alexandria to Amarillo, Texas, and I was there for two years with the Padres A Farm Club. Then I went to Memphis, Tennessee with the Memphis Chicks. We were the A team for the Montreal Expos in the Southern League. Those were long bus rides, Ryan. Yeah. Then I went to Columbus, Ohio with the Yankees AAA team. Finally started to fly a little bit in the International League. And then every every year you send out a resume and tape like you do for any other type of job. 
And the Mariners like my tape, and uh, here I am in the big leagues. Thanks to Dave Niehaus. I love Mr. Niehaus. I want to get to Dave in, in a second, but just going back to um, – what was his, the, the guy's name? He was already in the booth? John, John, oh, Lynn Rollins. Okay, so yeah. you rock up. How At that point, how long had he been – in he had, the minor leagues doing this for? He had been there, I think, for about three or four years in Alexandria. Was he an aspiring major league broadcaster? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you show up and all of a sudden yeah. he's like, who's this Yeah, who's this guy? Yeah. Uh, did, were you still doing the clubhouse duties at that oh, point? Oh, yeah. Or did you just start to skim that off? Oh, no. Side? I had to get up at 7 o'clock in wow. the morning, walk across the street. My apartment was right across the street. Get all the dirty laundry, the sweaty, smelly <laughs> laundry, the uniforms, you know what, all of it and put it into grocery carts and drag it across a gravel parking lot mm -hmm. to my apartment complex, sit there and do all the laundry. I really made a mistake with the Shreveport captains. They were the double-A team for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So they had uh, red stirrups and red sweatshirts, and I washed them. A couple snuck in with the underwear and the jock straps right. and everything. All their underwear came <laughs> up pink, <laughs> abs of this bright pink. And so I went, oh, my gosh, what do I do now? So I hung it up in the lockers and uh, waiting for the team to come in. Harry Saferight was a catcher on the – I'll never forget this guy. He was ticked off. He said, this? I got a pink jack strap and pink – I said, nobody's going to see it. Put on your uniform and shut the heck up. I made 50 cents a day from the players, oh, you know, man. for the uh, clubhouse dues. Wow. So that was that was my Hooking first, out the players. first job, yeah. And just, just on that, were there any – you know, there had to be those long nights where you're doing laundry and questioning what am I doing with my life. Oh yeah. But there was still that the fact that you're getting your three innings in. Yeah. Going, man, I love doing this. Yeah. And that's the takeaway from that. Basically, I, I love it, man. I, I'll yeah. do this to to be able to do that. Exactly. I just needed to start. Yeah. Every everybody needs that first door to open. Yeah. And I don't know. The good Lord just just blessed me, saying, "Okay, you're here now. You're not going to be here in Alexandria, Louisiana, for a long time." And I wasn't just for yeah. a few months because mm -hmm. we moved the team right after the season. But yeah, it was a beginning, and I found out I really love this. And it was what I did in the basement of my house, yeah. you know, doing a Chicago Cub game. It's what I did when I broadcast uh, at Southern Illinois my junior and senior years. I found out this is what I want to do. I love it, and I've got to give it my best shot. So 1983 rolls around. Yeah. You said – so every year you send out your tape and your resume. Yeah. And the tape is just basically – is that just like a highlight reel of all your good yep. calls and stuff throughout yeah. the – Two you, of them. You didn't, I, I, you didn't I, have the holy smokes at that point. Uh, uh, I th Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. I didn't okay. have, I, I, and then I got the good – Was that the hook? Goodbye baseball. Oh, oh, I, I don't <laughs> – I sent in two tapes, and what I did was, and I think this is what all young broadcasters should do, I sent in a highlight tape yep. so the, you know your prospective uh, employers can see what you do when you get excited. But I also did another tape with just three innings of play-by-play, -play, yep. three full innings of play-by-play, -play because as a broadcaster, you want to be listenable to. It's nice if you have a, a really good voice, but it's what you know mm -hmm. and how you control the tempo and the flow of a ball game. People have to be able to listen to you for three and a half, four hours every night. So I sent the three innings of play-by-play, -play, a highlight tape uh, as well, and I think, I think that really helped me out. So the Mariners get a hold of this tape. Do they bring you – do you have to audition? Do you have to go up and audition, or is it an interview mm -hmm. process? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's, this is a funny story. It's a great story. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Now, it's eight years I'm in, in, in the minor leagues, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get an opportunity to is broadcast. Is this in-season or off-season? This, uh, this is the off-season yep. of uh, 19 
82, and I'm with the Columbus Clippers. And uh, I was the sports director at WBNS Radio in Columbus. And, and Ryan, I basically had two jobs. I was sports director, so every morning I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Wow. I was out of the apartment by 4.30, drive downtown, get to the station at 5, on the air at 6. Every half hour we did a five-minute newscast, and I did a one-minute sportscast on each newscast up until 10 o'clock. And then I would go home and grab a little lunch or take a nap, go to the ballpark at 2 and do a game that night. Get home about 11 o'clock midnight, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning wow. again. For the last four years of the minor leagues, two years in Memphis, two years in Columbus, I got up at 4 o'clock every morning, and I did a game that night. I don't know how I did it, but I did. It's what I had to do. So anyway, I sent a resume and tape, and then the Mariners called me up. Melody Tucker is the director of broadcasting for the Seattle Mariners. And she tells me in January that I'm one of two finalists for the job. And I went, oh, my goodness. So I was to fly from Columbus, Ohio, to Santa Ana, California, to meet with the owner of the ball club, George Argerus. He was a developer in Southern California for Arnell Development and just bought the ball club the year before, in 1981. So I was to meet with Mr. Argerus. Well, the night before I was to fly out from Columbus to Southern California to meet with Mr. Argerus, I went to a local mall for a cookie-eating contest to kick off the Girl Scouts cookie campaign. So there were eight radio and TV personalities that were in this cookie-eating contest at this local mall in Columbus. I ate 33 cookies in three minutes, and uh, I didn't even finish first. I finished in third place. I got a big chocolate chip cookie from Mrs. Fields or something. And the next morning, later on in the morning, I was to fly out to Southern California, and, but I went to work in the morning at 4 o'clock, and about 7 o'clock in the morning, my, my chest was killing me. I thought I was having a heart attack. So I, I, I called the doctor, the team doc. I said, Doc, I said, uh, I don't feel so good. i got to fly to Southern California. You know, my chest is killing me. He said, get to the hospital right away. So I get to the hospital. They want to check me, see if I was having a heart attack. And he said, well, did you have anything to eat last night? I said, so, well, I went to this mall for you know, the, the kickoff of the Girl Scouts cookie campaign and I ate 33 cookies in three minutes he said what <laughs> what'd you do I said I ate 33 cookies in three minutes I finished in third place for the Girl Scouts he says oh my god he said well you probably stressed your sternum he said I got to do a couple of blood tests four or five hours apart and I said doc I got to fly to Southern California he said I can't let you go so I had to call Melody Tucker with that blue smock on with wires from the uh, EKG machine right. on me yeah and they had to wheel me out to the front desk on this gurney. No cell phones back in 1983. This is January of 83. So I called Melody. That's when I was born, January 83. Yeah, there you outstanding. Go. So, so I called Melody and said, Melody, I'm not going to make my meeting. She said, why not? And I said, I went to a cooking contest with the Girl Scouts, and then I stressed my sternum. I'm not going to be able to leave. So she goes, I'll call Mr. Rogers. She said, call me back in half an hour call back in half an hour she said can you be there tomorrow morning I said I will rip these wires off me I will be there tomorrow morning so anyway the next morning I, I don't go to a cooking contest the night before that night <laughs> so I fly to Southern Hot California dogging, yes. yeah I fly to Southern California and I get up now I get my opportunity to sit down with George Arduous at his desk in his big office there in Southern California and we're talking for about an hour about my career and everything and where I grew up and broadcasting the minor leagues, why you think you're a good broadcaster and everything. So then he looks at me, Ryan, and he points his finger at me and wags his finger at me like this back and forth. He said, now why did you miss your meeting yesterday? 
And I said, well, Mr. Idris, I went to a cook eating contest for the Girl Scouts campaign to kick it off, and I ate 33 cookies in three minutes. I stressed my sternum. Well, we laughed about it. We talked about another five minutes. Just, just then, on that, were, were you, was the, you obviously, you're, you're honest with him. Yeah. Was there ever that thought of saying, no, nah, I had the flu or something? Oh, no, no. Because you were embarrassed about the cookies. Honestly, it's the best policy. Absolutely, yeah. I, and it was Be funny. yourself, right? Yeah. So he, he wags his finger at me, and he goes, now, why did you miss your meeting yesterday? <laughs> I go, oh, my gosh. I said, well, the Girl Scouts had their cookie campaign, and I had 33 cookies and three of us. So we laughed about it. So five minutes awesome. later, you know, he concludes the interview, and he looks at me, Ryan. He puts his hand across his desk, shakes my hand. He says, anybody willing to risk his life for the Girl Scouts is my kind of guy. Welcome aboard. <laughs> and I got the job. That's so awesome. I got the Girl Scouts to thank for myself that, getting to the big unreal. leagues with the Seattle Mariners. Awesome. And at what point, you know, talk, talking about Dave, Did you was, was Dave a household name at that point? Oh, yeah. In 1983? Oh, yeah. He, he had been six years the, the lead voice for the Mariners. He and Kenny Wilson were the first two announcers in 1977. Kenny left to go to Chicago to do, I think, Blackhawks hockey, and he eventually did baseball as well with the Reds. He called Pete Rose's, you know, uh, base hit that broke Ty Cobb's record. But there was an opening, and uh, he left at the end of the 82 season with a few games left. And we had a backup catcher when I was with the Columbus Clippers by the name of Bruce Robinson. He had a friend who lived in Seattle mm -hmm. and heard that the Mariners would be looking for a new announcer because of Bruce Robinson. He told me, he said, Rick, why don't you apply for the job in Seattle? You know, I did. And uh, I can't thank Dave Niehaus enough because uh, he listened to my tape. He had an So impact. Dave listened to your tape? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. He so got, he had a big say at that point. He had a huge on say. On who was going to be sitting next to him. Exactly. Wow. For 162 games yeah. and doing about 30, 40 games on TV. We didn't do that many games on TV. But he had a great say in who was going to be his partner. So I can't thank him enough. I love him so, so much. Miss him dearly. He got me there as a young broadcaster in 1983. Another story, I go to Detroit after nine years. That didn't work out after three years. And he got me back in 1995. So I, do, I owe Dave Niehaus right. everything. So w when was the first conversation with him? Did he call you and say, welcome, in the off-season? Yeah. No, uh, first time I saw him, he was obviously instrumental in, in narrowing it down to the two guys who interviewed with George Idris. So I get the job with George. Instead of flying home to Columbus, he flew me up to Seattle the next day. So I had never met Dave Niehaus, nor have I ever talked to him. Finally, I talked to him on the phone when I got to Seattle. And Melody Tucker was taking me around town to look for an apartment and everything. We had meetings with... Must be an exciting uh, time for you. KVI. Oh, oh. Man, you, you think pins about... and needles, buddy. Just, I mean, I, I just... You know, people... For me, I, look, I took six and a half years in the minor leagues to get to the big leagues. And just in that situation, I'm like, man, I could be here for a day. Matter of fact, when I first went up to the big leagues, I didn't pitch. I got sent back down. I'm like, oh, man, yeah. that's going to be my story. I'm going to be the dude who goes up, doesn't pitch, and no, back no. down. But it's it's just that those moments in time where you, that you'll that's etched yeah. in stone in your head because yeah. there you are cruising around looking for an apartment in a, in Seattle. Yeah. You're about to be a major league broadcaster with I mean it's just yeah it must have been an amazing oh. couple forty eight hours for you. It was a whirlwind. Here I am with uh, a stomachache. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I finally was okay, you know, after getting rid of the stress sternum. But I finally got a chance to meet Dave Niehaus. We, we met at a pizza place, Pietro's Pizza in Bellevue, near where he lived. And I met him for the very first time. And he was so gracious, so kind, 
a wonderful mentor, and we became great friends. Uh, his wife, Marilyn, his entire family. I watched his kids grow up, you know. So he wasn't like and, old Lenny down in, uh, oh, in AA. Oh, no. His threatened. Oh, no, 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 not, no, no, not at all. He was looking for a partner. Right. He, he yeah. wanted somebody. <laughs> Len was going in 1975, like, what are you doing here? Yeah, Dave right. wanted me gotcha. there, and he was instrumental in getting me there. But I watched uh, Greta grow up and Matt and Andy, and I became a part of his family. He became yeah. a part of my family. Uh, my son, Nick, was only three years old at the time. We drove into into uh, Seattle after we went back to Columbus, moved back to Seattle. But uh, I, I, I looked at him, and I listened to that voice. I go, oh, my gosh, this voice is from baseball heaven, right. you know. And uh, and then our first broadcast in 1983, I go, oh my goodness, this guy is really, really good. And uh, so there's that intimidation in factor. Oh my goodness, are you talking spring training at Tempe? Or are you talking the first both both right at spring training? You know, I heard that voice. You know, yeah. low ball one. You know, I go, I I can't get that. I right. can't do that. You know, but Dave's in the Hall of Fame and deserves to be there. Went in in 2008, but uh, I could not have asked for a better mentor, teacher, counselor, friend than Dave Niehaus. What were, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but what are probably the top three things, even if they're the most broad statements that Dave taught you in the early days? Uh, well, number one, uh, I, I learned a valuable lesson uh, right away. Uh, he said, just be yourself. You know, you know, don't don't try to copy anybody. You know, don't a lot of guys try to copy Vince Scully. Yeah. And here's a two yeah. two pitch swung on and built in. You can't do that. You know, he said, be yourself. Dave was himself. You know, he's a great storyteller. The other thing he taught me, Ryan, was that if it's a bad game, it doesn't have to be a bad broadcast. We're here to entertain right. the fans. And I learned check your ego at the door. Yeah. You know, fans don't care about what kind of day you've had. And we all have our own hard times up and down. But when we do this job, fans rely on us. Yeah. And he taught me that lesson. And then he taught me a valuable lesson. You know, the opening game, my first game, I was so excited, so hepped up and everything. <laughs> and uh, we're playing the New York Yankees. And, and it's Gaylord Perry against Ron Guidry. And there's a, you know, 40,000 people of the kingdom. The next day, we'd have about 7,000. And you're coming off again. Day. I'll say this again. Eight years of double-A, triple-A baseball. It must have been Doing the games all by myself. Overwhelming. For years. Right. So now I'm with Dave Niehaus. And Dave, of course, is doing the first two innings. I do the third. He did four or five. I did six, seven. So mm -hmm. he, he starts off the broadcast. And I'm like, wow, this guy's awesome. And then after every pitch, I'm jumping in there. Yeah, Gaylord's really pumped up today. You know, <laughs> his fastball, maybe only about, you know, 86 miles an hour right now. But he's, he's you know, looking his fastball. Here's the windup of the pitch, and it's low ball, too. And Gaylord's looking good out there. You know, the and he, Willie Randolph's leading off of the Yankees. And the and I'm, I'm coming in after every pitch, you know, saying something because I'm so excited. My hair's on fire, man. <laughs> You're not kidding. So then after, <laughs> after about an inning, you know, I'm doing this. He turned off his mic. He turned off my mic, and he says, "You don't have to talk after every pitch." <laughs> <laughs> I go, "Okay, David, no problem." Oh, I was like secretariat out of the gate. I was thirty-one awesome. laps in front of everybody, and and I learned a very valuable lesson. That's You're awesome. on radio. Let the man do his job, and uh, I learned a lesson in a hurry. Right. Uh, that, yeah, it's interesting you said about the the be yourself part. We had at games. You and me. I filled in. For someone, we're in Anaheim, 
uh, playing the Angels in 2016. And I was nervous because I'm, you know, I'm sitting next to you and I, I've always felt comfortable doing stuff with you. And that's one thing you do really well in the booth. Thank you. Everyone, well, I'll get to that in a second. Check the ego at the door. Check your ego, absolutely. Yeah. But I was still nervous because you know you, you want to be – I'm trying to add from a player's point of view, right. not step on toes, all the technical things that you got to you know, keep up with, don't talk over the pitch, all these little things. Yeah. Um, but the one thing you said to me right before I about to go on air, hey, just be yourself. Because yeah. there's so many times I fall in that trap where I'm trying to sound pro. I'm trying yeah. to sound like someone else, yeah. to sound legitimate. And you said that to me, and it was just it was just that ease of saying, okay, just be myself, see the game. Yeah. You know, this is who I am, yeah. and go from there. I've never forgotten that. And yeah. as simple as that sounds, you f- you can forget that sometimes. But you're right, though. I mean, be a, you know when when you just yourself and you're relaxed, calm. That's when I feel like you know I sound the best, and, yeah. and when everyone sounds the best. Yeah, I'll I'll take care of the play by play part. I'm going to get you in. You know, it's not about me; it's about us. You know, in the broadcast, you know, and I, I, I would listen to Dave and I would make sure that he was done. And then I would say something if I had something to add. Yeah. You know, especially when he had the great call of Edgar's double. I waited and I waited and right. I waited. And he had the greatest call in the history of this franchise. And then I jumped in, you know, pandemonium here in the kingdom. Fifty five thousand people. going crit, But I made sure he was done. My job is make the, the color analyst you. Mike Blowers right now, or Dave Henderson, who was amazing for many years, and my first one, West Stock, many years ago, or Nellie Bryles or Joe Simpson, whoever was working with, be a part of the broadcast. Yeah. Tee it up for him. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make you comfortable. I wanted you to be you. I wanted to be yeah. you to be Ryan Roland Smith, the ex-pitcher, because the fans don't know what it's like to stand out there in the mound. Mm-hmm. And, and what it's like, you can give them that... Uh, that vantage point, you know, from the broadcast booth. So I'll, I would tee it up for you, and, and you were great. Another thing you do really well, and again, I know there's different techniques with TV and radio, you know, painting yeah. the picture of what's happening. Yeah. You know, you can sit, I can drive around if I'm not at the ballpark and, and listen, and say, and I get that image in my head. When you're th- talking about techniques and from a different generation, I feel like, and, you know, you, you can jump in here on this too, a lot of that's lost. Again, TV, yeah. uh, you know, the, the game speaks for itself. But I've been told, hey, you know, let the, the game will tell you what's happening. But it's still nice to sort of paint that picture. You have to. Yeah. And, and even, yeah. You know, and you mentioned Vin Scully earlier and Dave Niehaus, some of the greats. The best. Even on TV. Because, I mean, back when I was first coming up as a rookie, you know, I, I'd get done pitching and all of a sudden I'd, I'd flick on the, the game and, you know, Dave would do a little bit of TV. So I'd catch him on TV or I'd catch him on the radio and you as well. And, you know, Vince Scully was doing TV. But the ability to, one, give some sort of biography on the, on the dude pitching so you can learn something. But I feel like there's a little bit of that loss. And, again, yeah. I understand analytics and everything. Everyone wants to talk about these numbers and, and everything else. But from a technical standpoint, what are some of the things that, that if I'm a young broadcaster, what would, how would you teach whether they're doing TV and radio? Yeah. Like some of the big things you, you would give them, besides obviously be yourself. Yeah, but from a technical standpoint, of getting a feel for the game. What you what you have to remember as a young broadcaster or even a veteran broadcaster is, you're doing the game on the radio, and the biggest compliment that I could get or you could get or any broadcaster, somebody come up to you and say, "Hey, listen, what you do is you make me feel like I'm at T-Mobile Park right. or the Kingdom or Fenway Park in Boston." You have to be their eyes and ears. And when the game gets exciting, you know, those little hairs in the back of their necks will stand up. But 
long before the first pitch is made, this is a colorful game. You got to mention color. When you say the color, oh, the bright green grass of the infield and outfield, the powder blue sky without a cloud in the sky hovering over yeah. the Peoria Sports Complex, the wind blowing in from the left field corner to the right field corner. Now they're at the ballpark. You've, you've painted the picture with broad strokes, okay? Now you made them feel like they're there. They can even feel that cool breeze at, you know, 65 miles an hour. Right. RX 65 degrees coming across at 10 miles an hour. You put, now you put them at the ballpark. So th the words that you use, the phrases that you use, uh, paint the picture. Your imagination, Ryan, to this day is better than any camera ever invented if, you, if we do our jobs right. Yeah. And if you can put them in the front row seat at the ballpark, wherever ballpark you're broadcasting, then we're doing our jobs. But you have to remind the folks, color is vivid. Mm -hmm. You know, mention that green grass. Mention that navy blue batter's eye with the yellow stripe 10 feet high. Anything over that stripe yeah. is a home run. Now they can see it. Gotcha. Now they can see it. The big scoreboard out in left center field, the bright green grass of the berm in left field and the right field, our American flag out in right field unfurled, blowing out towards center field. It's going to be a windy day this afternoon. Uh, the words that we use will paint the picture, and now they have a landscape that we can put the words over the top of, and now they can see the game on the radio. After every broadcast, Ryan, I say, we'll see you on the radio tomorrow night mm -hmm. at 6 o'clock for the pregame show because that's what we do. We make people see it right here. I'm pointing to my head. Yeah. Right here <laughs> in our minds. Right. It's theater of the mind. Baseball yeah. is theater. You know, theater, you have a stage. In baseball, we have a field. In theater, we have uh, an audience. In baseball, we have our fans. In theater, we have a director. In baseball, we have a manager. And then the only difference, though, between theater and baseball is in theater, you have a script. Mm -hmm. The actors, oh, we've got the actors. In baseball, we have the players. Yeah. But we don't have a script. Yeah. We have a blank page. And we get a chance to write that script from the first pitch to the last pitch, ad lib it. And we rely on our experience to fill in those pages, and hopefully at the end of the day, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a skill, obviously. Not everyone can do that. It takes it's time. It's definitely a skill. But, you know, just from watching TV, listening to radio, especially during the playoffs, you know, usually the playoffs, they, they'll give those games to, you know, it's a national broadcast, so they kind of they yeah. try and give it. But there's, I just feel like there's, when you can hear something from that, that older style of painting the picture, I feel like there's still a little bit of that lost you yeah. know, around 2020 as, as, you, as you watch. But just going back to – you got enough time? You good? I got plenty of okay, time. Go. Right, I, I got plenty of time. No, no, no. I'm, Let's keep going. Um, okay, so going back to your time in the Mariners, 1983, you and Dave hit it off. Yeah. Right, right from the get-go. Right from the beginning. So then 1992, I believe, rolls mm -hmm. around, and yeah. then opportunity comes up with the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. So talk me through that. What was uh, the – for you, looking at that opportunity, how did that come about, and what was the, you know, what was the motivation there for you? That, w that was a, a really tough time in my life. Uh, I, I really didn't know what I was getting into – but the Detroit Tigers had a Hall of Fame broadcaster, and everybody loved the man, Ernie Harwell. Mm -hmm. He was there, Dave Niehaus, and already in the Hall of Fame. Uh, there was new ownership in uh, Detroit. Um, 
And uh, a new leader, the president of ball club, was Bo Schembechler, who was the longtime successful head football coach at the University of Michigan. And for some reason, they wanted to get Ernie Harwell out of the booth. They wanted some younger voices and everything. It was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, Ernie's last year was going to be the 1991 season. So it was out there that the Tigers would be looking for a new broadcaster. And Dave said, hey, why don't you apply for that? You, you know, your goal is to be a number one broadcaster. And I said, yeah, that would be something, a storied franchise, Detroit. I love Tiger Stadium. I met with uh, Ernie Harwell. Ernie, that year in 1991, said, Rick, I want you to apply for my job. And there was so much fewer. So he, so he reached out to you. He and reached said, out wow. to me. Ernie told me to apply for the job. He said, you've been in the big leagues for nine years now. You could do this. And I said, Ernie, I said, I feel sorry for the poor son of a gun who's got to replace you. It is going to be tough. Yeah. The whole town was up in arms. They were ticked off that Ernie was going to be leaving after okay. that year. But then I thought, well, if Ernie was going to leave and I knew he was going to be gone, maybe I'll, I'll do it. So I applied for the job. And sure enough, I got it. You know, I was the guy to replace a legend in Detroit, Ernie Harwell. It turned out to be a real difficult situation. Uh, the fans had a rough time getting used to me. Because no matter what. No matter what. I was an Ernie Harwell. Yeah. And it was really difficult. Then they started to come around. But then the ball club was sold. Mike Illich bought the team uh, from Tom Monahan. And Mr. Illich, after the 90 two season wanted to bring Ernie back and he had a meeting with myself and Bob Rathman who also came in to be my new broadcaster in 1992 and uh, he said hey fellas can we bring Ernie back and get through all this I said one year he said yeah just one year and I said okay let's do this so we brought Ernie back for the 1993 season he did three innings of play-by-play. -play. I did one and two, eight and nine. They wanted Bob Rathbun to do just pre- and post-game shows. So basically, you were back in, this, in the same situation you were in Seattle, now in Detroit, where Ernie was basically your new Dave, in a sense. Yeah, but he only did three innings of play-by-play. -play. Just, gotcha. just three, the third, fourth, and fifth. And they wanted Bob to only do pre- and post-game shows. And I said, this guy didn't work 10 years in the minor leagues just do pre- and post-game shows. I gave him two innings. He, he did yeah. the sixth and seventh. Yep. And uh, we got through that year. It was really difficult, to be honest with you. And then Ernie retired again. And then along came 1994. And then uh, the strike hit in August of 1994. It was a rainy day. The, the day just kind of fit the gloom of what was happening with yeah. Major League Baseball mm -hmm. at the time. And so, uh, so baseball came to a screeching halt. Week before Christmas of 1994, uh, I called Dave. And I said, Dave, this, something's going to happen. It, this is not going to work out here for me after three years here. I just knew something was going to happen. A week before Christmas, Ryan, uh, the, the Tigers tell me uh, they're not, they don't want me to do any more play-by-play. -play. They won't let me go, but they don't want me to do play-by-play. -play. And they said, I go, what do you mean? You know, we can still have you do pre- and post-game shows. I go, no, yeah. I, I got a contract for six innings of play-by-play. -play. I had to hire Kevin Kremen's brother, who was a great lawyer in Tulsa, to get me out of the contract, which I eventually did. I left, finally left after that third year. Dave Niehaus, Chuck Armstrong, Randy Adamack, Kevin Kremen. I love these guys. They were able to get me back after my three long years in Detroit, and I owe them everything. And thank God I came back when I did because I didn't miss the 1995 season. Right. That was the year 
that saved baseball, Major League Baseball in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So it was a difficult situation replacing a legend. I found out the hard way. You don't want to be the guy to replace the legend. You want to be the guy to try to re replace the guy who tried to replace the legend, you know. But I was back in Seattle happy, and I've been back ever since. Right. And you said, too, timing is everything. 94 then rolled into 95. Was that the most memorable yes. 162 <laughs> games? <laughs> well, it's 144 games right. that year That's because right. we started That's right. late. Right. We we didn't we didn't start back until I want to say April twenty sixth, and thank goodness you guys came back, man, because we were going to start the year right here, at uh, at uh, Peoria. We had the replacements working out, and we were going to start the season with replacement players. So you must be going into nineteen ninety five thinking fans are upset. This yeah. is going to be a dud. Yeah, it, it, you know what's happened oh. to baseball. All these things. And then you you fast forward to one of the most the the biggest year in really what a in turnaround the, history of the Mariners what a one eighty because we're watching these guys we had a guy you know on our ball club the replacement team John Sukalis I'll never forget his name maybe he's listening to the podcast right now he was a waiter at Billy McHale's restaurant in Factoria Mall or in Factoria Square yeah and uh, we had all these guys you know in, in a major league uniform of course not major league players running around bumping into each other. And thank goodness uh, it didn't happen that, that we were able to start the season when we did. Yeah. Lou Pinello told Dave and I before the last game here, and we're getting ready to go to Dunedin, Florida to start the year to play the Toronto Blue Jays because we wouldn't be able to play. Uh, the uh, union workers wouldn't allow everybody to cross the lines at the Sky Dome. It was Sky Dome at the time. And so we're getting ready to go to Dunedin to start the year. Anyway, Lou said, if I leave the game in the seventh inning, Something good may happen. So Dave and I are doing the game with Kevin Kremen right here in this booth in Peoria. And we saw Lou leave, walk down that first baseline all the way down to the clubhouse. And we go, uh-oh, what's going on? We found out that strike had been settled, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, we gave all the replacement guys uh, a barbecue dinner from Don and Charlie's. We thanked them very <laughs> much for their service. And a week later, the guys came in. We had our team back. And we got going with the season, 144-game season. Then we were tied at the end. We had the one-game playoff yeah. with the Angels and then the great series against the Yankees. Well, just back to the replacement players, what were oh. these guys going to be getting paid? $5,000. Really? $5,000. And where'd they come from? They came from everywhere. They tried out. Because we had a guy, uh, Ryan, who was a reliever, <laughs> Dave Graybill. Never forget his name. He was a fireman here in Glendale. And he would work a, a night shift and then come out here. He was our closer and pitch for us. And then one night, this is a true story, he saved two little girls in a fire, pulled them out of a fire, and then came out here and got a save. And I said, you know, he had a better save last night than he did this afternoon. Right. He saved two little girls out of a fire. <laughs> I mean, this is the wow. kind, this, these are the kind of guys it's that crazy. Where they, they do love the game of baseball. We had a couple of minor league kids mm -hmm. that But if you're, in, had if no you're shot. in the minor leagues, though, if you did cross, you were well, done. You were done. You were yeah. done. You were done. Man, you what know, a time. Yeah. I mean, that's – and again, not, not to take anything away from the end of 1995 in Seattle, amazing. But you go back to that time oh, of the year. Oh, we went from amazing. that all the way to the guys coming back and getting to the playoffs for the first time in our history. Edgar hitting that double yeah. and saving baseball in Seattle. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And every generation of people in Seattle, you know, when you say you work with the Mariners, two things come up, 1995 – and um, you know, two thousand one, obviously, yeah. with with the um, you know the wins. But 
it's amazing because we're talking. I'm talking to the voice of the Mariners right now. the The memories aren't so much about. The memories are more about being on a freeway on an interstate with the car, the the, the stereo radio, blaring yeah. and everyone high fiving each other in traffic. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, because and again the, with with the the Mariners and you know the not being in the playoffs for so long, but when you hear that stuff, I mean, I heard this stuff as a player. Yeah, 1995, 2001. I mean, you, you see those things as a player. Obviously, I'm not from Seattle, but so you see the highlights of it. Like, oh wow, yeah, they were good back then. But then you start it starts seeping in what that meant oh, to fans and and, and the everything. sounds and everything, which is just tattooed in their brain. Yeah, of what that meant to that city. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was everything. It was everything. Uh, Dave and I said for years because get this. The Mariners from 1977 didn't have their first winning season until 1991, which was 15 wow. years. It took 15 years to finally not be a losing franchise. When we won our 82nd game in Texas at the end of the season, Dave and I and Kevin went into the clubhouse. You can ask Alvin Davis this. We saw Alvin. We saw Dave Valley, Harold Reynolds, and we were emotional. Everybody had tears in their eyes because for the first time we were winners. We had an outfielder by the name of Tracy Jones. He had played with the uh, Cincinnati Reds. And Tracy was walking around. I saw Tracy. He says, what's going on here? We won, we won 82 games. He said, I said, you don't understand. This is the yeah. first year we have become a winning franchise. Now along comes 1995. And Dave and I for years said, all our community needs is a winning franchise, a winning ball club to rally around, and the fans will show up. You know, we had a lot of sparse crowds in 1977 yeah. for many, many years. We needed to give them something to go crazy about. And finally, here comes 1995. And now at the end of the season, we weren't really drawing that well. But now in September, we started winning 13 half games out of first place. The Angels started losing. Now we're getting 20,000, 30,000. 40,000, 50,000, yeah. 55,000 people first time in, for the first time ever. That's amazing. Uh, ex, un, you know, unless it was opening night, right. and then the next night would be 7,000, yeah. you know, years before that. But we, we fans finally got a chance to go crazy. In 2001 and 2002, Ryan, when uh, the ball club won 116 games with a young man who came over from Japan who we had no idea was going to be a great player and yeah. a future Hall of Famer, Ichiro. Brett Boone had an incredible season, mm -hmm. and Mike Cameron and, and John Olerud and Freddie Garcia and Jamie Moyer. We won 116 games. We drew 3.5 million fans. The next year, we drew 3.5 million fans. We outdrew every team in Major League Baseball for two years up in our little burb up in the Pacific Northwest. And... We have the best fans in baseball. We need to give them something to yeah. go crazy about again, and we will. Two things on that real quick. When you're sitting here, we're in Peoria. So it's spring training 2001. If you can go back to that, obviously, each yeah. row coming in. Yeah. There was a buzz, but not really, because no. he didn't tear it up in spring training at all. Even no. like Lou Pinella's like, who's this guy? Exactly. Um, and then you're looking at your team. Are you looking at that team going, man, we're going to win a lot of games this year? Or are you looking like, mm -hmm. eh, we'll see how this goes? That, ask I Lou mean, like, like, John Halam and Jamie Moyer are throwing yeah. 83 miles an hour. Exactly. You know? we had, but we had great starting pitching. Yeah. You know, Jamie starting Moyer and Freddie Garcia. Amazing. And Ryan yeah. Franklin, a young Joel Pinheiro. Uh, we had guys that could pitch and knew, and knew how to win. And uh, we looked around. Even Lou Pinella didn't know what he had. Dave Niehaus did a pregame show with him before one of the games down here at spring training. He said, who's the best team in the American League West? Lou said the Texas Rangers. 
Kevin Kremen edited that out of the pregame show interview. <laughs> you know, you can't have your manager say the Texas Rangers are the best team in baseball. And then the Mariners, we go out and win 116 yeah. games, more yeah. than any team in the history of the game of baseball. But it was a great team. Uh, you know, Pat Gillick traded away uh, after Woody Woodward left, traded away junior to the Cincinnati Reds. You got Mike Cameron See, and, and Brett Tomko. That's where I was going with that. You you do make that move. You trade away Ken Griffey Jr. So all of yeah, a sudden... The best player has, in baseball. Yeah, there has to be that residual effect of this franchise doesn't care about winning or blah, 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 whatever it may be. This team is not going to be good when you give up a player like that. Yeah. A, you know, once in a generation, yeah. lifetime yeah. player. Like, it's just... Because uh, I, was, I was in rookie ball. In 2001, yeah. I was on the field... 20 down here. Yeah, yeah. And I remember looking over and going, oh, man, look at the big league team. Wow, yeah. you know. And I, at that point, I was living in the Hampton Inn across the street over here. And you mm-hmm. turn on Sports Center. The Mariners were on Sports Center every night about how good they are and the best team. But I'm like, oh, man, yeah. oh, this franchise. We won wow. 20 games in April, team 20 weird. games in May. I'm in rookie ball with this team. Like, I felt proud of that. Yeah. It, you know, it, it was unreal. And then 2002, my first game ever at you know, Safeco, now T-Mobile Park, I walked in on a Tuesday night. I was playing for the Everett Aquasox. Tuesday night against oh, the Detroit okay. Tigers, who lost 100 games that year. Place is packed. Yeah. I'm like, man, look at this. Yeah. This is amazing. That's what happens when you win. Yeah. And and, and without three future Hall of Famers, because uh, Randy Johnson had been traded away and Alex Rodriguez signed as a free agent in the trade of Ken Griffey Jr., you know, Pat Gillick put together a, a winning team. Got John Olerud over at first. Brett Boone came off an injury. I think he was with Atlanta the year before and had an incredible year. Uh, Carlos Guillen at short, then David Bell over at third base. Dan Wilson was still there with the ball club. Edgar Martinez, our DH, and Jay Buhner was still there. Mike Cameron in center field. And we had a number of guys in, in, in left field, but yeah. we had a solid pitching staff. And uh, Norm Charlton was still figuring yeah. out to get people out in the bullpen. He was amazing in 95, and he came back, yeah. I think, for about the third time. <laughs> and But it was just an amazing ball club that knew how to win, who played the game right, got off to the incredible start, the 20 wins in April, 20 wins in May, and they just kept winning. I think they won 19 games, you know, in June. But uh, it was so much fun. I don't think they lost back-to-back games until August. That's how good they were. Mark McLemore, Unreal. You know, yeah. you know, played all over the place. He said, don't call me a utility player. I'm an everyday player that plays different positions. Yep. He was a shortstop. He was at yeah, he was in the lineup every he played day. The, yeah. He was in the lineup every day. Every so it was an incredible run. And the fans really turned out, three and a half million fans up in Seattle, and, and we're going to get back there. Rick, and, you know, I want to wrap oh, – got a game to, to call here and pretty soon, so I'll, I don't want to keep you too long here. I'm having fun. But uh, <laughs> I'm good. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, these memories and, and obviously this job. And I hear this from other people, um, you know, from other organizations and stuff. Oh, well, hey, this, this job's easy when you're winning and it's not so easy when you're losing. For me, look, I'm still pretty fresh to this. I love it. Like – in the off season, you know, I'm doing some other stuff, you know, with kids and stuff back in Australia. I love doing that. Yeah. But man, yesterday, rolling into the ballpark, sitting in between, you know, you and Gary yesterday, I left that. I left yesterday just saying, man, just charged up, ready to go. Loved it. What for you? It's 2020. You've been doing this for so long. 45 years. 45 years. What drive? What drives you? Is it just the complete fact that? You love doing this. I mean, you've yeah. witnessed some bad teams throughout the years. Yeah. I've been on a couple of them. So <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, 2010, you know, years like that. But regardless, uh, when I 
came back, 2015, I came back to, to say hi to you guys. And, and I have you to thank, actually. Bullpen banter, you got me involved in yeah, that. Yeah, I got as you involved. I started your loved career, it. buddy. I loved it. I was like, <laughs> man, this is a blast. No, seriously. And I came back and, and you, know, you were very welcoming when I came back. I was like, this is, I think this is what I want to do. Um, and you've made it the transi- transition Good. so easy just with well, your positivity. I saw you wanted to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. But for you, at this stage in your career, 45 years later, you know, you've been through good seasons, bad seasons. Um, you know, you had Dave. You know, now you, you've, you've been through a lot. What is it in 2020 coming in, you still have the same enthusiasm I've witnessed. Yeah. What, what is it mm. for you? You know, Ryan, I, I still love what I do, and I still love the preparation. I work hard, and in the morning when I get up, I do all my notes. Yeah. Before I, when I get to the ballpark at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I do my notes. I want to be prepared. I don't want to let the fans down. I want to know what's going on. I want to know who's available down to the bullpen, who's not. You know, if a lefty comes up and left-handed hitter comes up and we don't bring in a lefty, mm-hmm. maybe he's got to sit yep. Arthur Rhodes down for, because he pitched four days in a row or something or yep. whatever. But I still love the preparation. But, I'm, I'm, you know, after all these years, after 45 years, I love what I do. I've been blessed by the good Lord to be able to do this and make a career out of it. But I feel like I'm still at the 12-year-old kid in my basement, yeah. you know, doing Cub games, you know. Because I'm you know, talking, it's sixth inning, we're down by seven runs, and you got some random people coming in that radio booth yeah. that you've never met before, and you turn around and treat them like as if they're sitting well, next to you with the head, head, headphones on. Well, yeah, there, there's, I'm just saying it's very unique, yeah. and, and that's what... That's what I'm trying to trying to pull from you. I, I, I get yeah. that from my mom and dad. <laughs> Treat everybody with respect, right. you know. Uh, be nice. Smile to them. You know, acknowledge them. Uh, say hello to them. Uh, make them feel a part of whatever it is you're doing. And I, I try to make a fan one at a time. And they tell somebody, hey, you know, I met Rick and blah, blah, blah. But, I, I, you know, as far as this goes, Ryan, I, I, I still love it. You know, uh, hopefully I can still stick around here for yeah. a few more years and uh, watch this team get to the playoffs and get to the World Series. But every day I, I never take this for granted. I'm still having yeah. fun after all these years. I asked Vin Scully years ago, how long do you want to do this? And he said, as long as my wife allows me <laughs> to leave the house right. and I still love what I can do and I can do it at the level that I want to do it. He says, I'm going to keep doing it. And he did it up until I think he was 87 or 88 years of age, 67 years behind the microphone, all with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Los Angeles Dodgers franchise. So um, uh, I can say that I'm, I'm living my dream and I love every moment of it. Well, Rick, this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully yeah. you get to do it during the regular season if you come on again. But um, Anytime you want, buddy. This show was brought to you by Miss, Mrs. Fields and the Girl Scout Cookies. <laughs> so I've got a giant cookie for you. Did you ever eat that cookie or what? Uh, I didn't eat that cookie. I don't know whatever happened to that cookie, but I still buy Girl Scout cookies. I love the trefoils or whatever they're called, the shortbread cookies. And H- how many cookies was it in how many minutes? 33 cookies in three minutes. You know what? You've got those 33 cookies. Uh, you can drink milk, too. You can drink milk. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. But you really have those to thank because you had that nice little icebreaker yeah. you know, with the guy who's trying to hire you. Exactly. You know? it, was, it was very helpful <laughs> to yeah. me. We laughed about it. And he said, anybody willing, it's George separator. Arders, yeah. anybody willing to sacrifice his life for the Girl Scouts is my kind of guy. So that's how he got the job. Rick, this has been fun, man. Thank you. <laughs> thank I appreciate you, Ryan. It. Thanks, Great thanks job, buddy. <laughs>